Chapter Six of the Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Six: The Moon Maid. Orthus, who was becoming the almost constant companion of the chief, was standing beside the latter while I was twenty-five or thirty yards away, and directly between Gavago and the warriors who were approaching with the prisoner who would of necessity have to pass close beside me. I remained where I was, therefore, in order to get a better look at it, which was rather difficult because it was almost entirely surrounded by novons. However, as they came opposite me, there was a little break momentarily in the ranks, and I had my first opportunity, though brief, for a closer examination of the captive. And my comprehension was almost staggered by what my eyes revealed to me, for there before me, was as perfectly formed a human female as I had ever seen. By earthly standards, she appeared a girl of about eighteen, with hair of glossy blackness that suggested more the raven's wing than aught else, and a skin of almost marble whiteness, slightly tinged with a creamy shade. Only in the color of her skin did she differ from earthly women in appearance, except that she seemed far more beautiful than they such perfection of features seemed almost unbelievable had i seen her first posed motionless i could have sworn that she was chiselled from marble yet there was nothing cold about her appearance she fairly radiated life and feeling if my first impression had been startling it was nothing to the effect that was produced when she turned her eyes full upon me her black brows were two thin pencilled arches beneath which were dark wells of light vying in blackness with her raven hair on either cheek was just the faintest suggestion of a deeper cream and to think that these hideous creatures saw in that form divine only flesh to eat i shuddered at the thought and then my eyes met hers and i saw an expression of incredulity and surprise registered in those liquid orbs she half turned her head as she was dragged past that she might have a further look at me, for doubtless she was as surprised to see a creature like me as I was to see her. Involuntarily I started forward. Whether there was an appeal for succor in those eyes I do not know, but at least they aroused within me instantly that natural instinct of a human male to protect the weak. And so it was that I was a little behind her and to her right when she was halted before Gavago. The savage Vaga's chieftain eyed her coldly, while from all sides there arose cries of, Give us flesh! Give us flesh! We are hungry! To which Gavago paid not the slightest attention. From whence come you, Yoga? he demanded. Her head was high, and she eyed him with cold dignity as she replied, From lathe. The Novan raised his brows. Ah, he breathed, from lathe. The flesh of the women from lathe is good, and he licked his thin lips. The girl narrowed her eyes and tilted her chin a bit higher. Rymph, she ejaculated disgustedly. As Rymph is the name of the four-legged snake of Vana, the inner lunar world, and considered the lowest and most disgusting of created things, she could not well have applied a more opprobrious epithet to the Novan chieftain, but if it had been her intent to affront him, his expression gave no indication that she had succeeded. Your name? he asked. Na-ila. 
she replied. Na, Ila, he repeated. Ah, are you the daughter of Sagrath, Jemadar of Lath? She nodded in indifferent affirmation, as though aught he might say was a matter of perfect indifference to her. What do you expect us to do with you? asked Gabago, a question which suggested a cat playing with a mouse before destroying it. What can I expect of the Vagas other than that they will kill me and eat me, she replied. A roar of savage assent arose from the creatures surrounding her. Gavago flashed a quick look of anger and displeasure at his people. Do not be too sure of that, he snapped. This be little more than a meal for Gavago alone. It would but whet the appetite of the tribe. There are two more suggested a bold warrior close beside me, pointing at me and Orthus. Silence, roared Gavago. Since when did you become chief of the Novans? We can starve without a chief, muttered the warrior who had spoken, and from two or three about him arose grumblings of assent. Swift at that, Gavago reared upon his hind feet, and in the same motion drew and hurled his spear, the sharp point penetrating the breast of the malcontent, piercing his heart. As the creature fell, the warrior closest to him slit his throat, while another withdrew Gavago's spear from the corpse and returned it to the chief. Divide the carcass among you, commanded the chief, and whosoever thinks that there is not enough, let him speak as that one spoke, and there shall be more flesh to eat. Thus did Gavago, chief of the Novans, hold the obedience of his savage tribesmen. There was no more muttering then, but I saw several cast hungry eyes at me, hungry, angry eyes that boded me no good. In what seemed an incredibly short space of time, the carcass of the slain warrior had been divided and devoured, and once again we set out upon the march in search of new fields to conquer and fresh flesh to eat. Now Gabago sent scouts far in advance of the point, for we were entering territory which he had not invaded for a long time, a truth which was evidenced by the fact that there were only about twenty warriors in the tribe, besides Gabago, who were at all familiar with the territory. Naturally quarrelsome and disagreeable, the Novans were far from pleasant companions upon that memorable march, since they had not recovered from the fright and discomforts of the storm, and in addition were ravenously hungry. I imagine that none other than Gabago could have held them. What his purpose was in preserving the three prisoners that would have made such excellent food for the tribe, I did not know. However, we were not slain, though I judged the fellow who carried me would much sooner have eaten me, and to vent his spite upon me he trotted as much as he could, and I can assure you that he had the most devilishly execrable trot I ever sat. I felt that he was rather running the thing into the ground, for he had an easy track which would have made it much more comfortable for both of us, and inasmuch as I knew that I was safe as long as I was under Gabago's protection, I made up my mind to teach the fellow a lesson, which I finally did, although almost as much to my discomfort as his, by making no effort to ease myself upon his back, so that at every step I rose high and came down hard upon him, sitting as far back as possible so as to pound his kidneys painfully. 
It made him very angry, and he threatened me with all kinds of things if I didn't desist, but I only answered by suggesting that he take an easier gait, which at last he was forced to do. Orthus was riding ahead with Gavago, who, as usual, led the point, while the new prisoner, astride a Novan warrior, was with the main body, as was I. Once the warriors that we bestowed paced side by side, and I saw the girl eyeing me questioningly. She seemed much interested in the remnants of my uniform, which must have differed greatly from any clothing she had seen in her own world. It seemed that she spoke and understood the same language that Gavago used, and so at last I made bold to address her. It is unfortunate, I said, that you have fallen into the hands of these creatures. I wish that I might be of service to you, but I also am a prisoner. She acknowledged my speech with a slight inclination of her head, and at first I thought that she was not going to reply. But finally, looking me full in the face, she asked, What are you? I am one of the inhabitants of the planet Earth. Where is that? And what is a planet? she asked, for I had had to use the Earth word, since there is no word of similar meaning in the language of the Vagas. You know, of course, I said, that space outside of Vana is filled with other worlds. The closest to Vana is Earth, which is many, many times larger than your world. It is from Earth that I come. She shook her head. I do not understand, she said. She closed her eyes and waved her hands with a gesture that might have included the universe. All, all is rock, she said, except here in the center of everything, in this space we call Vana. All else is rock. I suppressed a smile at the vast egotism of Vana. But yet how little different is it from many worldlings who conceive that the entire cosmos exists solely for the inhabitants of Earth. I even know men in our own enlightened 21st century who insist that Mars is not inhabited and that the messages that are purported to come from our sister planet are either the evidences of a great world hoax or the voice of the devil luring people from belief in the true God. Did you ever see my like in Vana? I asked her. No, she replied, I never did. But I have not been to every part of Vana. Vana is a very great world, and there are many corners of it of which I know nothing. I am not a Vana, I told her again. I am from another world, far, far away. And then I tried to explain something of the universe to her, of the sun and the planets and their satellites, but I saw that it was as far beyond her as of the conceptions of eternity and space beyond the finite mind of Earthmen. She simply couldn't get it, that was all. To her, everything was solid rock that we know as space. She thought for a long time, though, and then she said, Ah, perhaps after all there may be other worlds than Vana. The great who's, those vast holes that lead into the eternal rock, may open into other worlds like Vana. I have heard that theory discussed, but no one in Vana believes it. It is true, then, she exclaimed brightly. And you come from another world like Vana. You came through one of the Who's, did you not? Yes, I came through one of the Who's, I replied. The word means whole in the Vagas tongue. But I did not come from a world like Vana. 
here you live on the inside of a hollow sphere we earthmen live upon the outside of a similar though much larger sphere what holds it up she cried laughing it was the first time that she had laughed and it was a very contagious laugh and altogether delightful although i knew that it would probably be useless i tried to explain the whole thing to her commencing with the nebular hypothesis and winding up with the relations that exist between the moon and the earth if i didn't accomplish anything else i at least gave her something to distract her mind from her grave predicament and to amuse her temporarily for she laughed often at some of my statements i had never seen so gay and vivacious a creature nor one so entirely beautiful as she the single sleeveless tunic-like garment that she wore fell scarcely to her knees and as she bestrode the novon warrior it often flew back until her thighs even were exposed her figure was divinely perfect its graceful contours being rather accentuated than hidden by the diaphanous material of her dainty covering but when she laughed she exposed two rows of even white teeth that would be the envy of the most beautiful of earth maids suppose she said that i should take a handful of gravel and throw it up in the air according to your theory the smaller would all commence to revolve about the larger and they would go flying thus wildly around in the air forever but that is not what would happen if i threw a handful of gravel into the air it would fall immediately to the ground again and if the worlds you tell me of were cast thus into the air they too would fall just as the gravel falls it was useless but i had known that from the beginning what would be more interesting would be to question her and that i had wished to do for some time but she always put me off with a pretty gesture and a shake of her head insisting that i answer some of her questions instead but this time i insisted tell me please i asked how you came to the spot where you were captured how you flew and what became of your wings and why when they tore them from you it did not injure you she laughed at that quite merrily the wings do not grow upon us she explained we make them and fasten them upon our arms then you can support yourself in the air with wings fastened to your arms i demanded incredulously oh no she said the wings we use simply for propelling ourselves through the air in a bag upon our backs we carry a gas that is lighter than air it is this gas which supports us and we carry it in such quantities as to maintain a perfect equilibrium so that we may float at any altitude or with our wings rise or fall gently but as i hovered over lathe came the air that runs and seizing me with its strong arms bore me off across the surface of vana futilely i fought against it until i was spent and weak and then it dropped me into the clutches of the vagas for the gas in my bag had become depleted it was not intended to carry me aloft for any great length of time she had used a word which when i questioned her she explained so that i understood that it meant time and i asked her what she meant by it and how she would measure it since i had seen no indication of the vagas having any conception of a measurable aspect of duration naila explained to me that the vagas who were a lower order had no means of measuring time but the yuga 
the race to which she belonged, had always been able to compute time through their observation of the fact that during certain periods the bottoms of the hoos or craters were illuminated, and for another period they were dark. And so they took as a unit of measure the total period from the beginning of this light in a certain crater to its beginning again, and this they called a eula, which corresponds with a sidereal month. By mechanical means, they divide this into a hundred parts, called ola, the duration of each of which is about six hours and thirty-two minutes earth time. Ten ulas make a keld, which one might call the lunar year, of about two hundred and seventy-two days earth time. I asked her many questions, and took great pleasure in her answers, for she was a bright, intelligent girl, and although I saw many evidences of regal dignity about her, yet her manner toward me was most natural and unaffected, and I could not help but feel that she occupied a position of importance among her own people. Our conversation was suddenly interrupted, however, by a messenger from the point, who came racing back at tremendous speed, carrying word from Gavago that the scouts were signalling that they had discovered a large village, and that the warriors were to prepare to fight. Immediately we moved up rapidly to Gavago, and then we all advanced toward the scout, who could be seen upon a knoll far ahead. We were cautioned to silence, and as we moved at a brisk canter over the soft, pale, lavender vegetation of the inner moon, the feet of the Vagas giving forth no sound, the picture presented to my earthly eyes was weird and mysterious in the extreme. When we reached the scout, we learned that the village was situated just beyond a low ridge not far distant. So Gavago gave orders that the women, the children, and the three prisoners should remain under a small guard where we were, until they had topped the ridge, when we were to advance to a position where we might overlook the village and if the battle was against the Novans, we could retreat to a point which he indicated to the warriors left to guard us. This was to be the rendezvous, for following defeat, the Vagas warriors scatter in all directions, thus preventing any considerable body of them being attacked and destroyed by a larger body of the pursuing enemy. As we stood there upon the knoll, watching Gavago and his savage warriors galloping swiftly toward the distant ridge, I could not but wonder that the inhabitants of the village which they were about to attack had not placed sentinels along the ridge, to prevent just such a surprise as this. But when I questioned one of the warriors who had been left to guard us, he said that not all the Vagas tribes were accustomed to posting sentinels when they felt themselves reasonably safe from attack. It had always been Gavago's custom, however, and to it they attributed his supremacy among the other Vagas tribes over a large territory. After a tribe has made a few successful raids and returned victorious, they are filled with pride, the warrior explained to me, and presently they begin to think that no one dares to attack them, and then they grow careless, and little by little the custom of posting sentinels drops into disuse. The very fact that they have no sentinels indicates that they are a large, powerful, and successful tribe, we shall feed well for a long time. The very idea of the thought that was passing through his mind was repellent in the extreme, and I fairly shuddered when I contemplated the callousness with which this creature spoke of the coming orgy in which he hoped to devour flesh of his own kind. 
Presently we saw our force disappear beyond the ridge, and then we too advanced, and as we moved forward there came suddenly to us from the distance the fierce and savage war-cry of the Novans, and a moment later it was answered by another no less terrible rising from the village beyond the ridge. Our guards hastened us then to greater speed, until, at a full run, we mounted the steep slope of the ridge and halted upon its crest. Below us lay a broad valley, and in the centre a long, beautiful lake, the opposite shore of which was clothed in forest, while that nearest us was open and park-like, dotted here and there with beautiful trees, and in this open space we descried a large village. The ferocity of the scene below us was almost indescribable. The Novon's warriors were circling the village at a rapid run, attempting to keep the enemy in a compact mass within, where it would present a better target for their spears. Already the ground was dotted with corpses. There were no wounded, for whenever one fell, the nearest to him, whether friend or foe, cut his throat, since the victors would devour them all without partiality. The females and the young had taken refuge in the huts, from the doorways of which they watched the progress of the battle. The defenders attempted repeatedly to break through the circling novans. The warrior with whom I had been talking told me that if they were successful, the females and the young would follow them through the break, scattering in all directions, while their warriors attempted to encircle the novans. It was almost immediately evident that the advantage lay with the force that succeeded in placing this swift-moving circle about its enemy, and keeping the enemy within it until they had been dispatched. For those in the racing circle presented a poor target, while the compact mass of warriors milling in the center could scarce be missed. Following several unsuccessful attempts to break through the ring of savage foemen, the defenders suddenly formed another smaller ring within and, moving in the opposite direction to the Novans, raced in a rapid circle. No longer did they cast spears at the enemy, but contented themselves with leaping and bounding at a rapid gait. At first it seemed to me that they had lost their heads with terror, but at last I realized that they were executing a strategic maneuver which demonstrated both cunning and high discipline. In the earlier stages of the battle each side had depended for its weapons upon those hurled by the opposing force. But now the defenders hurled no weapons, and it became apparent that the Novons would soon no longer have spears to cast at them. The defenders were also lessening their casualties by moving in a rapid circle in a direction opposite to that taken by the attackers. But it must have required high courage and considerable discipline to achieve this result, since it is difficult in the extreme to compel men to present themselves continuously as living targets for a foe, while they themselves are permitted to inflict no injury upon the enemy. Gavago apparently was familiar with the ruse, for suddenly he gave a loud cry which was evidently a command. Instantaneously his entire force wheeled in their tracks and raced in the opposite direction, paralleling the defenders of the village and immediately thereafter cast their remaining spears at comparatively easy targets. The defenders, who were of the tribe called Luthans, wheeled instantly to reverse the direction of their flight. Those wounded in the sudden onslaught stumbled and fell, tripping and impeding the others, with the result that, for an instant, they were a tangled mass, without order or formation. 
Then it was that Gavago and his novons leaped in upon them with their short, wicked sword daggers. At once the battle resolved itself into a ferocious and bloody hand-to-hand -hand conflict, in which daggers and teeth and three-toed paws each did their share to inflict injury upon an antagonist. In their efforts to escape a blow, or to place themselves in an advantageous position, many of the combatants leaped high into the air, sometimes between thirty and forty feet. Their shrieks and howls were continuous and piercing. Corpses lay piled so thick as to impede the movements of the warriors, and the ground was slippery with blood. Yet on and on they fought, until it seemed that not a single one would be left alive. It is almost over, remarked the warrior at my side. See, there are two or three Novans now attacking each Luthan. It was true and I saw that the battle could last but a short time. As a matter of fact, it ended almost immediately, the remaining Luthans suddenly attempting to break away and scatter in different directions. Some of them succeeded in escaping, possibly twenty, but I am sure that there were not more than that, and the rest fell. Gavago and his warriors did not pursue the few who had escaped, evidently considering that it was not worth the effort, since there were not enough of them to menace the village, and there was already plenty of meat lying fresh and warm upon the ground. We were summoned now, and as we filed down into the village, great was the rejoicing of our females and young. Guards were placed over the women and children of the defeated Luthans, and then, at a signal from Gavago, the Novans fell upon the spoils of war. It was a revolting spectacle as mothers devoured their sons and wives their husbands. I do not care to dwell upon it. When the victors had eaten their fill, the prisoners were brought forth under heavy guard, and divided by the Vargas between the surviving Novans warriors. There was no favoritism shown in the distribution of the prisoners, except that Gavago was given first choice, and received also those that remained after as nearly equal a distribution as possible had been made. I had expected that the male children would be killed, but they were not, being inducted into the tribe upon an equal footing with those that had been born into it. Being capable of no sentiments of either affection or loyalty, it is immaterial to these creatures to what tribe they belong. But once inducted into a tribe, the instinct of self-preservation holds them to it, since they would be immediately slain by the members of any other tribe. I learned shortly after this engagement that Gavago had lost fully half his warriors, and that this was one of the most important battles that the tribe had ever fought. The spoils, however, had been rich, for they had taken over ten thousand women and fully fifty thousand young, and great quantities of weapons, harness, and apparel. The flesh that they could not eat was wrapped up and buried, and I was told that it would remain in excellent condition almost indefinitely. End of chapter 6 Recording by Thomas Corbett